This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is back on Thursday, so I have the pleasure of your company through Wednesday's Fight Back. Well, we've not had a snowstorm of that magnitude in Toronto on a March 3rd since 1944. Just under 19 centimeters of snow had fallen at the airport by midnight with an additional six or so on Saturday morning. For those who have snow blowers or a person with strong legs who live in your, who lives in your house to clear out the driveway and sidewalk, we deal with it in stride. But what if you're elderly and perhaps frail, but still living in your own home? Who is going to help you out? And now, time for the Zoomer Squad. We go to our Zoomer Squad to talk about remembering those loved ones and older neighbors who could use some assistance, not only to have the driveway cleared, but to run important errands for them. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. And John Wright is Executive VP of Mar. Public Opinion, filling in for Peter Mugridge. Hello to you all. Hi, Jane. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jane. David's in the studio here with me. Bill and John are on the phone. Uh, Bill Van Gorder, um, we all made out okay after our storm up here in Ontario. You're in Nova Scotia. Uh, what about the frail and the elderly? It really is a public service announcement. Well, it really is. And uh, yes, we got uh, we got 25 plus uh, centimeters uh, after you got it. Same storm and same uh, issues uh, here and really uh, urging our CARP members and others to think about their neighbors, think of people who are uh, shut in. You know, these days we don't always know uh, the neighbors on our street like we used to. So it is a time to reach out to offer to help uh, a shovel or even run uh, run errands. Uh, uh, we really need to ramp up our our uh, ability to take care of one another. There is a, an ongoing suggestion that the, right across the country, uh, government should keep track of the people who are vulnerable in these situations, whether it's a, a snowstorm, a hurricane, a major rain uh, rainfall, keep track of them and have a contact method set up so that they can be uh, checked on in an efficient way right after a storm. And I think the storm uh, this weekend was just another example while this would really be a good idea in Ontario and across the country. Bill, that is a great idea. Is it just an idea or is there actually movement on that? There are some communities who are uh, doing it. There are service clubs and others who are working with uh, uh, local branches of uh, Red Cross and other organizations uh, to do that. There's also, uh, in some areas, the uh, 211 information line is uh, allowing such access. The big problem is getting people to sign up for it in the in the first place, and, and that's going to take a major effort. So, yes, it's in place for some people, but not to the extent it should be, because 
the kind of people who are hard to get listed, especially in rural areas, are the are the very ones who need the most help when uh, there's an occurrence like there was this weekend. David, your thoughts on the storm and how it's affecting everyone. Uh, do you have a snowblower shovel? No, how did I, you... I don't. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, my strategy this on this one was benign neglect. I just stayed in and let it melt, which it eventually <laughs> so let, waited for the city to come by with their plows. But I think um, part of the problem is that we don't know what services are or are not available. Uh, whether it's contact, which Bill suggested, which is excellent. But in talking to another one of our colleagues this morning, Bill and I, we learned that there's a service where the city will come and clear the driveways from, you know, when the snowplows come by, of course, they pile up at the end of your driveway. Um, windrows, I think they're mm-hmm. called. And you can get the city to get rid of them if there's a senior, but you got to sign up for that in the summer, like for the coming season. Well, that's the first I ever heard of this in my whole life. Well, I had you no telling me is that the first I've heard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they've got these services maybe tucked away in the nooks and crannies of the bureaucracy. And it's very hard to find out what's available for you and how to get your yourself signed up for it. And I think with the number of people aging and more older people, the chances of there being a larger population of, let's say, more frail uh, older people, even if they're in good health, shoveling snow is a whole other, you know, deal. Right. There's going to be more and more and more of those people every year. So it's incumbent on our listeners and our audience to say the same way as you have your furnace checked in September for the coming winter, what are your plans in case something happens like this? Who is your support system? Who's going to go and buy the food? Uh, who's going to check up on you. And you've got to lay these things down ahead of time. And maybe if we get in the habit of doing that more, it'll be better. Well, thank you for bringing that up about the City of Toronto service. I guess the first place to start maybe for an older person is by calling 211 or 311 just to see when you can get on that list. Uh, that's really good information. Uh, John, thoughts about uh, the storm cleanup and uh, and those who need more assistance? Look, I'm a young senior. I just turned 65 this year, and um, I am very careful even now in terms of shoveling snow. I'm very, uh, I'm very fortunate. I have a, a wife who's a few years younger than me, and she really loves shoveling snow. So I maybe, she, maybe she wants to go and do other people's on the on the network, but she loves it. She absolutely loves it. That's amazing. But I'm just, I, I want to be serious for a moment. I remember my dad's first heart attack. He was 64, and it came after shoveling some snow. We were home on uh, on a Saturday. He went out and shoveled the driveway. It was a, just before dinner, and he said, look, I, I'm not feeling that great. I'm just going to go upstairs and lie down and have a rest. And he went upstairs, and he didn't come down for dinner. We went up, and there he was on the bed turning blue, and he survived. And, I mean, back in those days, he had a triple bypass where it would have been something different nowadays. But that is a marked moment in my life. And it really was a thing where I was able to go out and do some work. I I didn't let my wife do all of the the, the work out there. But I'm very conscious, especially um, on the day of cleanup, when that snow is very heavy, um, as everybody knows, and you got to be really careful. So I just, you know, I think some people uh, at a certain stage believe they're still able to go out there and, and get it all done, and they have to be really careful, especially at this time of the year when, 
you might be able to lift the lighter snow, but boy, if you're into something that's a little bit uh, heavier and you're you're living alone or you're not having anybody around to keep an eye on you, you got to be really careful about that. At this big storm we had on Friday night into Saturday morning, it really is a reminder for all of us to reacquaint ourselves with our neighbors as well. Like on either side across the street, is there somebody who's disabled or elderly who needs to be checked on? Um, and uh, for those of us who are still able to shovel our driveways, go across the street and say, hey, can I at least carve out a path for you? Or do you need any groceries? Right. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing of decades ago that people just did because yep. they were good neighbors. It's it's a time for us all to remind each other of how important that is when there is a big event uh, like a like a weather like a storm or a power outage. Um, we do have a call on this. Uh, let's go to Sue in Mississauga. Hi, Sue. Thanks for calling in. Hi. How are you today? Fine. What did you want to add? Good. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you were talking about the windrow programs um, for seniors um, or or people with disabilities. I have a million um, ailments in my body, and I tried using the program in Mississauga for a couple of years. It does, however, cost, I don't know what it is in Toronto, but in Mississauga, it costs $200 for the season. And um, my experience was they didn't come out for at least three days to do the bottom of your driveway. And you've got a million places you need to be, you need to go and three days just didn't cut it. So I stopped signing up for the program. So with my million ailments, I still end up having to shovel out my driveway. And you're doing it yourself. I'm doing it myself and I'm in my sixties and then have all kinds of fun stuff going on in my body, but um, you do what you got to do. Right. And the programs, although they sound great, I just wanted to let you know that, uh, yeah, they don't come within 24 hours usually um, because they're out there doing other stuff, and and it costs money. Sue, thank you very much. Uh, Important information. Thanks for calling in. Okay, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. We're with our Zoomer squad, Jane for Libby, along with David Kravitz, John Wright, and Bill Van Gorder. And we'll change topics now. And of course, you're always welcome to call in whatever we are discussing. The numbers are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. It's almost COVID-19 booster time again. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization is recommending an additional COVID booster dose this spring for various segments of the population, adults 80 plus and those living in long-term care homes or other congregate settings for seniors or those with complex medical needs, all adults 18 and over who are moderately to severely immunocompromised, and adults 65 to 79 who do not have a known history of being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. David, that that's a first for that category. Well, it's a little bit um, hard to figure out what it means. I mean, it's easy for me because I'm just going to get the thing anyway. You know, if there's a new booster, and I'm just going to stay current on that program, and I don't try to finesse the 
the finer points, but who do not have a history of being exposed to right. that. What is that? A known mean? history. Like, yeah. in other words, you may have had COVID, but you were asymptomatic. So as far as you know, you haven't had it right. all the way along. And you're 65 to 79. So that's a but new... did I not have it because I got the previous shots, which I did? Yeah. And why don't they just say, just everybody go get a booster if in you're that age 65? Group. You yeah. Know, well, the distinction between 65 to 79 and then 80 plus a little bit slicing and dicing it a little bit right. tricky for Two me. Two in the weeds, maybe. I think so. Yeah. I think so, But it's still great advice, and I think everybody should get it. And, and let me ask you out there this as well. Will you be getting another booster if you fall into any of these categories? 416-360-0740 or one 740 Bill, I can ask you the same question. Yeah, absolutely. And David's right. It, it's confusing. Uh, when I knew we were going to be talking about this today, I went uh, online to have a look at what the most recent uh, uh, information is in Ontario and from uh, NACI. And because although I was aware of what they had said last fall, I was looking for what had happened in the last few days. And it's so confusing to try to read through uh, all the, uh, I think, uh, 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 very unclear statements. And this has been the problem that we've had all along with the vaccines. One of the things that really did strike me was depending on where you look, only between 30 and 50 percent of people who are already eligible for the boosters have actually had their boosters. In fact, in some pro- uh, provinces, it's as low as 25 percent have had uh, their their booster. So people weren't getting the boosters that were were recommended last fall, let alone the new violence now that that they're saying all of us should uh, should get. The government somehow must be have to be more clear about this. And the 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 uh, people who are not trusting the the government's recommendation, the NACI recommendations, uh, more and more we're we're hearing from them and not from from others. And and partly it's because they're confused by this information, and so. Uh, disinformation uh, uh, abounds beca- because of it. So uh, we really have to uh, urge our governments and others to make these recommendations clear, simple, and uh, understandable. Otherwise, we're going to be back in the situation where not enough people are getting the uh, boosters and uh, COVID's going to be on the rise again. Uh, John, you just told us that you have recently turned 65. So when you hear adults 65 to 79 who have not had a known history of being infected with COVID, are you ready to get another shot this spring? In a moment. Um, You know, again, not to detail all my medical history, but I was in to see the doctor. When you're 65, it's almost like you're discovering yourself all over again, right? You go to see the doctor and they have a checklist and you go... You say, have you had the mono, have you had the, the uh, pneumonia shot and the shingle shot? And you look at the nurse and say, no, I haven't. And they go, roll up both arms, please. You know, and then you get it right there and you move to the next list of questions. And it's, you, you go through this list. And I just said to her, uh, this was on Thursday. I said, you know, when do, when am I next available to get this? And she checked, uh, you know, when I got it last, she said, you should be coming up for it. And I'm, you know, I've had COVID once. I had a, a light version, if you can call it that. But I, I wanted specifically to ask about it because it's free. It could be life-saving. I'm going to go and get it as soon as it's there. 
uh, and I got everything else that I uh, I had to get while I was there. So again, it's why take the risk? There's a study that uh, was put out last week with a huge sample in the United States where they look at people who have had COVID a year after the fact, and the increase in potential stroke and heart problems is up 1.6 over what it would have been before. So if you have been exposed, whether it be, you know, longer COVID or shorter COVID or lighter COVID or heavier COVID, whatever it is, and and to the other point, you may not know you've been exposed to it, best go and get the shot. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. There may be anti-vaxxers out there listening who want to come after me, but it's kind of like, that's my religion. I'm going to go and get it, and yeah. you're not going to change my view. I think all of us around the table here feel the same way. If they tell me, the medical experts, that it's my time to get shot number six, which it would be for me, then I'm going to go because I figure they know a whole lot more than the people on the internet who think they know everything about vaccines. It is the Zoomer Squad uh, with John Wright there, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, Jane for Libby. We'll go to the phones uh, and you're welcome to call in 416-360-0740 or one 740 4740 Sita in Mississauga, always nice to chat. Uh, what what are your thoughts? Thanks, Jane. Um, so I was again sick last week. I went and, and got the COVID vaccine. Um, sick for 24 hours with headache, fever, and and so. And this happened with any every other vaccine I take. Yet I am proud doing my part to protect and stop the spread. Right. And um, it's true. Some people do get more side effects, but for 24 hours, that's really short-lived compared to if you were to get COVID, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And everybody does have reactions. I remember actually the worst reaction I've had to a vaccine, David, was uh, the second shingle shot. Uh, didn't feel very well, you know, got a lot of redness in, at the site of the injection. A lot of people talk about that one as being even more intense yeah. than, than a COVID shot. Yeah. I've been lucky that um, I'm right out of the textbook, you know, sore arm for a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, on COVID, I was, I think, more drowsy than normal day one. Exactly what they tell you to expect and uh that's what it was, and luckily, and and for some reason, I don't. I think I fall into that category of not being aware of having had COVID if I've even had COVID. So I have, you know, knock on wood, yeah, <laughs> dodged the bullet. That's amazing so far. But I, I'm going to offer up my arm yeah. as the, the minute I can for Absolutely. the next shot, and and all of the ones thereafter. And Bill, just on a final thought, if you, it's too much criteria to absorb, uh, the best uh, way, course of action is to either speak with your doctor or if you don't have a family doctor, go talk to your neighborhood pharmacist, right? Absolutely. That they're, uh, your pharmacist is a, is a great uh, source of information uh, on these uh, vaccines, all the uh, vaccines, and much easier usually to get to and talk to than even those of us who who do have a family doctor and it's so important uh that that people who are over 65 uh, uh, whether or not uh, you feel like you're overall healthy or not uh, not only for yourself uh, but to make sure that uh, you don't get it and therefore pass it on to other people that you contact who are at uh, are at high risk there is no question in the recommendations that we're getting from the uh, from the medical experts at the highest 
levels that these vaccines work and should be taken. And if we don't, we're risking uh, uh, future illnesses. And uh, as was pointed out, uh, uh, not just worrying about getting COVID uh, now, but we now know, as John says, more and more uh, studies that show people who have had uh, COVID, and especially COVID severely, are opening themselves up to other health problems in later years. So uh, both for now and for the future, get your COVID shot. We have time for one more topic with our Zoomer squad on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Um, something completely different, but very much in the realm of Zoomer dynamics. Uh, the coronation of King Charles III and word that the office of the king has been in touch with Charles's younger son, Prince Harry, about the new monarch's coronation. And this raises the possibility Prince Harry and perhaps uh, Meghan, uh, the Duchess of Sussex, will attend the historic ceremony despite tensions with his family, the royal family, especially after the release of Harry's book, Spare. Now, the couple's office has released a statement saying they did receive correspondence about the coronation, but that an immediate decision on whether the Duke and Duchess will attend will not be disclosed at this time. I'll start with you, John. Should Harry go to his father's coronation? Oh, goodness me. Well, <laughs> the kind of reception he would get in uh, in England would, would may not be all that great, so that's a first hesitancy. Secondly, I don't know where they're going to stay. They've been evicted. Maybe they can shack up with somebody in, in town, I suppose. Uh, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> I, I think the other thing, however, is in the last time that uh, they were there for the Queen's funeral, they got sat behind a pillar or something like that. You know, every part of their movement will be photographed. If I, if it were uh, me, uh, and I'm not royalty, I'd probably say, look, you know, we've, uh, we're traveling or something like that. I, and it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But if you go and you're right in the middle of everything, it, it might not be that great for them. But I don't know. They, they're used to attracting a lot of attention, a lot of controversy. David, this is, I mean, even though we're talking about the royal family, so it's a whole other level, families go through this stuff where there's estrangement, a misunderstanding, people don't talk for years in some cases, a big family event like a wedding happens, in this case a coronation. Do you go, do you make amends so that it can be special for everyone? What to do? Never mind families, just stay with the royal family. Yeah. The queen's uncle formerly King Edward, who abdicated, was banished for lifetime lifetime banishment because of his, uh, I don't think abdication, but his uh, flirting with the uh, the Nazis at the outbreak of World War II. And she never wanted to see him again. And I think she finally did. But uh, that was very difficult. I don't know what the table talk would be with if you take the queen, uh, the late queen and, you know, Prince Andrew, you take the Princess Margaret thing back in the fifth. I mean, they, the royal families had no shortage of uh, ups and downs. Many of them public, and many of them, I think, more substantive than whatever Harry's uh, um, objections are. But I think that the it's my own opinion, and I'm sort of in the middle. I'm not. I'm. I like the royal family, but I'm not a raging royalist. I think some occasions are bigger than the individual. Uh, grievances. And I think the classy thing to do would be to show up. And if there's a little bit of booing, I think it, you're take right. Take it on the chin. Yep. Be a class act. It's a historic event. 
and be seen to have done the right thing instead of, uh, you know, pouting off in a corner right. somewhere. Yeah, you That's make, just my call. No, you make an excellent point. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? Should Harry go to his father's coronation? Well, uh, I agree with David that he probably should. But what I first uh, heard the story, what, what I thought was, what a good political move on behalf of the royal family that they extend an invitation. And now it's up to Harry to either accept or reject, take the pressure off them and, and put it on him. And I think for once, maybe they've uh, handled this kind of situation uh, the way we would expect them uh, and uh, now they can always say, look, we invited him. And uh, if he doesn't come, well, it wasn't because he wasn't invited. And uh, they're going to uh, they're going to win either way. The pressure is totally on uh, on the other side now. And how they're going to respond is going to be a really difficult uh, decision. As uh, John said, uh, they're really going to have to uh, buck up, hold their tongues and uh, and. Uh, attend quietly if uh, and try to attend as, as quietly as they can if they uh, they want to go. If I was them, would I do it? No, I don't think so. I'm not sure I'd want to put myself through that, and maybe they won't either. John, it sounds like maybe there's a poll in the offing on all of this. Yeah, I'll do one when I get my invitation. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, well, we will leave it there for this week's Zoomer Squad. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jane. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jane. John Wright is filling in for Peter Mugridge, Executive VP of Maru Public Opinion. John is. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. And coming up in the second half of Fight Back here on Zoomer Radio, we will, will we be in for any more snowstorms like we had on Friday this winter? Now that it's almost spring, we will speak with uh, our friend Dave Phillips about that later in the half hour. And next, the future of the Ontario Liberal Party following the annual general meeting this past weekend. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Thursday. It was the largest annual general meeting of the Ontario Liberal Party in 20 years. But many are wondering if the Liberals will be able to come back from two major election defeats to either form the official opposition at Queen's Park or become the governing party when we Ontario voters go to the polls in 2026. Joining us to discuss, Bob Richardson, Liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations and longtime Liberal MPP Mitzi Hunter. Hello to you both. Hi, Good thanks for having us. Oh, great to have you here, both of you. Mitzi, I'll begin with you. If you could maybe just give us a wrap-up of what was accomplished over the weekend's AGM. Well, it was certainly a, an epic weekend. There were so many exciting moments, uh, the biggest of which was the almost unanimous passing of a constitutional amendment to 
change from a delegated um, form of voting for our leader to one that is a direct vote of each of the members, one member, one vote, um, to select the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party and the next Premier of Ontario. And Mitzi, explain for us one member, one vote. How is it different from the traditional convention election of a new leader? This this is vastly different. So in the traditional way, we had riding associations select 16 delegates and they would be sent to the convention, usually held in a central location like Toronto or Mississauga, to to have um, that decision made. This is now where the members themselves will have an opportunity to vote directly and they will be able to, to choose in a ranked way their first, second and third or other you know, choices. And, and then that will be counted until someone is declared the winner of the party. This is extremely important to us as Ontario Liberals because the members of the party, the grassroots members, wherever they reside, uh, whether it's in the north or rural communities uh, or in the big cities, they will have a, a direct say. We've done it in a weighted Format So each riding will have a total of 100 points so that, uh, you know, our smaller northern and rural ridings will still have a say in who becomes our leader. Bob, how important was the AGM to the start of reversing fortunes for the Ontario Liberals? Well, I think it's no, uh, it's no secret that things were in pretty rough shape for the Ontario Liberals after the last election. And I think this uh, convention uh, needed to be successful. It needed to modernize the party. They needed to change the rules on selection for leader. And, uh, and they needed to elect a new executive. They did all those things. And they attracted a, a very large crowd, 15, uh, 1,500 people, which is one of the largest crowds in a long period of time for the Ontario Liberal Party. And if I might add, uh, kudos to uh, Mitzi, who's on the phone, who was one of the leaders uh, of the party um, trying to get the leadership process uh, successfully uh, changed. And uh, you guys did a great uh, job. So kudos to you, Mitzi. Well, thanks, thanks Father. Jane, if I may also just add, uh, one of the leading proponents from our local riding associations, our Scarborough Guildwood Women's Provincial Liberal Association, um, is Jan Rowan. And she is going to be celebrating her 93rd birthday this month in March. Wow. <laughs> Oh, good for her. That's amazing. Um, so, Mitzi, a lot of people, when you acknowledged uh, prior to the AGM that you were heading up um, this movement to change the way the voting is done for the new leader, you made it clear that you will not be seeking uh, the leadership of the Ontario Liberals. And I think a lot of people were disappointed about that. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was a very emotional and high weekend for me because I met people from across the province, like in so many communities who, who said to me, you know, Mitzi, um, we really wanted you to, to do this again because I had run in 2019, 2020 right. for the leadership under the previous system. And, um, you know, but I wanted to go into this uh, AGM being really clear um, with, with our, our members um, who were attending the AGM that, you know, 
I was not pushing for a change in the selection process for our leader to, to have any advantage to, to myself as a potential candidate. I really wanted it to be um, that this was the right move for our party, and this was about the growth of the party and, and really recognizing and strengthening the voice of our, our grassroots members. And, and I think that by, you know, Stating that up front, as, as sad as I was, because, you know, this is my second family and I care very much about the, the, the future of our party. Um, you know, I really had to, to make that declaration right up front. Oh, so are you coming to the end of your career in provincial politics? Uh, you know, part two of my question is, why are you not running? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I have had just a wonderful career. Um, since I first, uh, I first was elected in a by-election in, Scar- in my riding of Scarborough Guildwood, you know, I've run in four straight elections and, um, and have been re-elected each time, even in the tough ones, as Bob will know, in 2018 and, and in 2022 when the Liberals were, you know, we, we weren't given a chance, uh, to, to come back and to govern or to even form, um, party status to be to be perfectly frank. So um, my, my community, um, certainly we have a special relationship. Um, they know that I'm their strong voice and, and I'll continue to do that um, until, until, you know, I, I'm um, going on to do something else. And, uh, you know, but, but for now I'm, I'm staying in my seat. Okay. There is a part three to my question, but I'll leave that for a moment. Uh, one of yeah. the 1,500 people attending the Liberal AGM on the weekend was David in Toronto, and he called in to join the conversation. Thanks, David. Go ahead. Hi, how are you today? Fine. You're on the air. It was a, what, wonderful, yeah. it was a wonderful conference. Um, you know, it's the first time that I've, I've attended as a delegate as opposed to being a volunteer. And it was really, really fantastic being part of the process to bring the party forward. And and how do you see that playing out uh, over the next year in choosing a leader and having the opportunity to regain official party status? With, uh, I, I think they're going to see a lot of newcomers, um, like new MPPs that are going to throw their hat in the ring and it's going to give them a a fair chance to uh, possibly become uh, the next leader of the party. All right. Well, thank you for calling in. I'm glad it was a nice weekend for you. Bob, who do you see as the candidates who can renew interest for Ontario voters in the Ontario Liberals? Well, right now there are three that are really kicking the tires hard, if I could put it that way. Nate Erskine-Smith, the uh, MP for the Beaches, uh, Yasser Nakfi, the former Attorney General of Ontario and an MP in uh, Ottawa, and uh, Ted Su, who's the MPP for uh, for Kingston. They're all uh, capable, uh, good uh, politicians. They've all built, uh, they're all building teams out there right now. Part of the reason why there was as much enthusiasm and people at this conference is a credit for the, uh, to them for the work that they've been doing for the last three or four months. So that's a good group of candidates. There's several other people that are still considering uh, the the mayor of Mississauga, uh, Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie. I think there's one or two more of uh, Mitzi's uh, colleagues in the uh, in the Ontario legislature who are looking at it too as well. So this will be an excellent group of uh, candidates. Uh, that's what you want when you're renewing a party. You want a good, well fought leadership with uh, lots of activity going on in ridings. 
uh, and, uh, and a good turnout for the vote. And uh, I think that's uh, where this is headed. Two of those legislature colleagues you mentioned are Stephanie Bowman and Dr. Adil Shamji. Uh, Mitzi, what do you think, uh, not only of those two MPPs, but of uh, some of the others whose names are being mentioned? Yes, I was going to jump in there when Bob was speaking to say late breaking, because I just saw um, Adil Shamji's uh, press release he put out uh, today uh, confirming that he is in the exploration stage. And, and I think that that's really wonderful. And, and Stephanie Bowman also confirmed that last week. Um, you know, what, what I, what I am excited about is the fact that we're going to have such an exciting race, uh, lots of policy ideas, um, lots of engagement with our, our grassroots members, especially with the new, um, one member, one vote. Every vote is going to be very important. And I think you're going to see the tone of this leadership uh, to be very collegial and collaborative because you're going to want to um, make an impression on on our party members like David, who called in here um, today. And, and so I think each of these uh, individuals have their, their own strengths. Uh, I know they all care very deeply about the party and about what is happening in the province, frankly, in terms of, uh, you know, those, those progressive values, a strong, um, and public education system, uh, healthcare for all, you know, and not, not privatized and, um, and, a, and an environment that is respectful of, uh, of the future of, of, of the, this province. And, you know, things like, um, carving up the green belt is, is something I know that that these individuals will stand firmly against. So, you know, we're we're certainly looking forward to a wonderful contest coming up. Um, we're waiting on the the new newly elected uh, executive council under our new president uh, Catherine McGarry uh, to to come forward with uh, with more information on the timing and on um, more clarity around the rules. And um, and I, I just know it'll be an exciting time there because there's already so much strong interest. And we don't know who else is going to come forward, especially with the, the new rules that are, are adopted. If you're just joining us, that is longtime Liberal MPP Mitzi Hunter. Um, she is joined by Bob Richardson, Liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Yes, focusing on the issues. And Bob, once the leader is chosen, how do the Liberals go forward toward 2026? differentiating themselves from the New Democrats and even the Green Party? Well, I think what they need to do is, uh, in my personal opinion, um, is the Liberal Party does well when it is a moderate centrist party, uh, when it is not uh, too far to the left or not too far to the right. And that's the lane uh, where the Liberal Party uh, does the best. And I think it's that's the lane what, that reflects the views of uh, most uh, moderate uh, uh, most moderate liberals. So that would be the place where I would be headed if, uh, if I was the uh, leader of, uh, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Um, and I think they've got to make sure that they're talking about the issues that people are talking about out there. Mitzi did a very good, you know, uh, list, uh, list of them, uh, from healthcare to, uh, the environment. Uh, I think people are concerned about their personal safety right now. There's a whole variety of economic opportunity. So there's a whole number of issues that the Liberals can certainly uh, dig into and uh, put forward, you know, some new and compelling ideas on. So there's lots to work with. 
but they need to get to work uh, and they need to be uh, more clear about what they stand for in the next election than they did in the last election. Right. And I, and I wonder, Mitzi, if the new Democrats have almost become the new liberals, are saying the things that the liberals used to say, are taking on uh, many of those viewpoints and philosophies. What are your thoughts about that? I don't think so. I, you know, I sit in the legislature and I definitely see a clear difference uh, between uh, a, a strong progressive uh, liberal party that's sort of in the middle and um, and also can can really take evidence and information and and make adjustments uh, around that middle as we need to um, versus the new Democrats that oftentimes um, are are bound by a specific you know ideology or 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 a view that that in no way uh, will ever change regardless of, of what the reality is out there. I also believe that, you know, I, I know that there's a new leader as well for the, the new Democrats, Marit Stiles. Um, I certainly wish her the well, wish her well in her role. Um, but the fact that there was no contest at all, no, no new Democrat, um, sort of bothered to throw their hat in the ring, uh, it prevented, uh, them from having a, a robust policy discussion and debate, uh, where they could listen, um, and hear what is on people's minds. And I think that that's, um, unfortunate. It certainly gives her a, a very cold start, um, to her, her tenure as, as the leader of the official opposition. But I, I believe that Ontarians will see a distinct um, uh, difference with the Ontario Liberal Party. 1.1 million people voted Liberal in the last election, in slightly more actually than than the New Democrats, and we had um, certainly a slight increase in our vote share. Um, while all of the other parties, including the the, the Progressive Conservatives and the NDP, they dropped. Um, in their vote share from the previous election. So we want to build from there mm-hmm. and with a new re- reinvigorated Liberal Party with an exciting new leader who is about to be selected. Yeah, that was the silver lining, wasn't it, Bob? The four Liberals, people who voted Liberal, the, the popular vote did not reflect the seat count whatsoever. Yeah, no, the, the seat count was not, was not, uh, was not favorable to the liberals. We'll leave it at that. But, but the, um, but the vote, uh, but the vote count was or was an improvement. Still lots of work to do there to get traditional liberals to come out and, uh, and vote. And there's got to be a focus to the liberal, uh, to the liberal message. Uh, there has to be a good team. I think any one of these candidates could recruit a good team and, uh, they got to get out there and work. It's, uh, it ain't going to be handed to them. The Conservatives will be very tough. Uh, they'll be tough and well-financed. And the NDP are a tough opponent, and they're not to be underestimated. So Liberals have a lot of work to do, but they've also got a lot to work with. So I think there's uh, some good opportunities in this coming election. And, Jane, you know, one of the things that we have to work with that's really exciting that came through in our AGM on the weekend is our youth voice. is very strong. Um, you know, I saw some young people, even as young as 18 years old, go to that mic and, you know, really fight for their voice in the leadership selection process. And they were listened to and their amendment went through. Uh, so there will be uh, 50 points um, for those youth clubs and those um, campus clubs as well. So we, we, we do have that 
as a very strong and encouraging part of our party as well as the, the role of young people in the, in the party. Before I let you both go, uh, Mitzi, part three of my earlier question, are you getting any closer to deciding if you are going to run for Toronto's next mayor? You know, um, this is uh, something that I am taking seriously. You know, the nominations will open on April 3rd. And at this time, I am taking the good advice of, uh, of, of those that are, are surrounding me, as well as listening to amazing feedback I'm getting from even my own constituents who are encouraging me uh, to put my name in the run for mayor of Toronto. This is, as you know, a place that I love. I, I grew up here and, uh, and I want to see a strong future for, for everyone in Toronto, a city that's safe, that's affordable, that's clean and, uh, and, and where people can, can live, work and raise a family. I would think you have a fairly strong voter base if you do choose to run for Toronto's mayor in Scarborough, Guildwood. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. I, I love my community where I live now, and uh, I, I know that uh, that they are supporting me and encouraging me in this decision, and it's, it's just uh, it's, it's really a wonderful time. Thank you. A pleasure to speak with you, Mitzi, as well as you, Bob. Thanks both for your time. Thank you. Longtime Liberal MPP Mitzi Hunter and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, are we in for any more thunder snow this weekend? We go to the country's foremost expert next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Great to be with you through Wednesday and then Libby is back on Thursday. Well, not only did Toronto break a 79-year-old snowfall record for March 3rd this past Friday, we also experienced thunder snow. What has to happen in the atmosphere for thunder and lightning to occur during a snowstorm? And will we be getting any more big snowstorms before this winter season is over? If anyone knows, it's Environment Canada's senior climatologist, Dave Phillips. Dave, thank you for joining us. Well, good afternoon, Jane. Always a treat to speak with you. Talk to us about that storm and the unique thunder and lightning show that accompanied record snowfall. Yeah, now it was a record for the date, March the 3rd. So I don't really get too excited by that. I mean, the previous record was about 14 centimeters. We got in total in the in the Toronto area. I was really amazed how uniform the amount of snow was. Mm-hmm. Um, we had it really anywhere. I, I think we got up, Scarborough had 32 centimeters, but uh, Pearson had about 25, and, uh, and I, I think uh, Brampton had... Uh, 24. So very, very close to about that sort of uh, 20, 20 to 20 to 30 centimeter amount. And that's exactly what was forecasted. I'm not suggesting that for people to pat us on the back, but you know, the storm behaved in a in very predictable way. It arrived when it, it, it should have, and it left when it should have. And it brought the amount of snow that, um, that we, uh, that we had forecasted and, and really was the last 10 days, Jane, have, we've seen about 50 centimeters of snow or a little bit more than that in the Toronto area. I mean, that's a half a month, a half a uh, season's worth of snow in 10 days. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and <laughs> so that was quite a lot. And and I think we've melted a lot of it. I saw this morning that the uh, there was only about... Um, 
maybe 15 centimeters sitting on the ground. And uh, so so we've melted it, and that's good. You don't want to end up with, uh, you know, a saturated ground and, and flooding sort of situations. But it was really kind of remarkable for the thunder and the lightning. Now, we've seen thunder snows before. Typically, we get in the Toronto area maybe one. But what was so spectacular about this one, Jane, is that everybody kind of heard it or, or saw it. I mean, uh, hitting the CN Tower and over many communities, in Ontario. So it was a very kind of almost it had the atmosphere of July that is very unstable, unsettled air, air rising, a lot of lifting to it. And then when when that air lifts, and it was very, very sopping wet, very, very warm for that time of the year. And as it rises, you get those little particles in the clouds separate into plus charges and negative charges. And that really, when you get so many of those, then that creates the lightning. And when you have lightning, you have thunder. You don't get thunder without lightning. And so that's really what was spectacular. It was across the, the, the horizon in many communities, and it was no doubt about it. A lot of people confuse thunder snow with, uh, you know, a backfire of a vehicle or a sonic boom or a transformer flashing. But this was really the, the kind of July thunderstorm that you'd get. And you often get a lot more snow because the air is very saturated and very close to the freezing mark. So this amount of snow you get with a thunder snow is usually more than you'd get with just an ordinary uh, snowstorm. So thunder snow, um, the result of thunder snow is different than in the summer when you have the clashing of two different air masses, right, causing the thunder and lightning. Yes. I mean, the, the actual lightning is the same process. That is, the charges within the cloud will uh, will separate, and then you get so many of them that it, it uh, and then you get that lightning when the, the light charges attract unlike charges, and then you get that lightning. And then, of course, lightning is just the, 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 the heating of the air column, and then you get the the, the thunder, the noise that comes from that. Um, and uh, But the process is the same in the winter, uh, summer. It's just that in the su- winter time, you rarely see it. Maybe once a year where we would get maybe 33 thunderstorms in, an, in a whole year with yeah. almost most of those occurring in June, July, and August. So it's a bit rare, It's uh, but it really took everybody's mind off of it. It was sort of a, a great conversation piece, and people said, did you hear it and see it? And uh, it was no doubt about it what it was, um, but it seemed rare to a lot of people, and it, it relatively is, but I would say on average we get maybe one a year, but often they go undetected. And often, Jane, you can't hear them because the, the snow and the large clouds, it kind of muffles it, you say, and so it muffles the sound. So it's, uh, But this one was really peals of thunder and, and, and strokes of lightning. Dave Phillips, uh, looking forward now short-term yeah. and long-term, are, are we going to be getting any more big storms or will it start to slowly become more spring-like? I think it slowly will come. Now, I don't necessarily think that's the winter's last parting shot. We typically, in Jane, after the 1st of March, and here we are the 6th, so we've got a few days, but we typically get about 22%, about 20 centimeters of snow from March, April, and into, my gosh, I have to say, even May. Two years ago, we had snow in May the 28th. I mean, it just kind of fell and whited the ground and then disappeared. So it's not over until it really is over. But so we won't, but the big ones, you know, you don't normally get big ones, and if they 
come, they're sort of, you know, one day wonders that, you know, I always think, Jane, you know, what nature giveth, it can also taketh away in March and April. So in other words, don't necessarily shovel it, plow it and push it. Let nature do that for us because we saw the temperatures warm right up yesterday to five degrees, two degrees today. Now, over the next week or so, it's what we're going to have is kind of maple syrup weather. It's, you know, just a little about the freezing mark, but then below the freezing mark, back and forth. And Jane, you know, that's perfect weather because you don't want the plants to grow quickly. We had a, 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 a kind of a situation about, I think it was 2012, where we had all the trees were blooming and then we lost all the apples in Ontario because That's the right. frost came later. Yes. So my sense is, and this is good for if there's any flooding, you can kind of start it melting and then freezing it, kind of ebb and flow it. And so my sense is we have to be patient. Spring is not going to arrive uh, tomorrow. And it may not be until April that we really get some consistent warm periods. How interesting has this winter been for you as a climatologist, Dave? Because we literally had spring weather in January, and now we have winter weather in March. Jane, I don't think that back up and upside down is so spectacular. I mean, I always think the year is fascinating no matter what it is. And I think this year was kind of, hey, more snow than we normally would get. We've already had a year's worth of snow. And we had more last year at this time. So, you know, that's not kind of, it's not a shocker that we're seeing. But it's been so balmy. It's been so balmy for a long time. Jane, we've gone 10 months in a row in the Toronto area with every month being uh, a little little warmer or a lot warmer than normal. January was like a protracted January thaw. And, um, and, and December was mean, but it was actually warmer than normal. And February was hey, the coolest of the winter months. So I think it's been, um, been kind of, uh, I think the one statistic for me, Jane, that really told it all was how many days that we get, say, below minus 10. That's not a cold day, but, you know, Toronto, uh, uh, minus 20 might be cold in other parts of Canada. Minus 10. We would, we got about, 15 of those this, those this year. Mm-hmm. Last year, we had 47 of wow. them. Wow. Right. So this has been a mild winter. It's been snowy. Um, so and often when it's milder, you get a little bit more snow because the air masses come from the south. They're more moist. They're warmer. And you maybe get that snow if it bumps into the cold air. But my sense is don't put away the snow shovel or the or the balaclava or the, <laughs> or the parkas and the uh, I think uh, we'll see a little bit more. But when it comes, it's very short-lived, and it goes as quickly as it arrives. Okay, there's a silver lining. (laughs) Dave, always (laughs) enjoyable to get your take on the weather. Thank you for your time. So welcome, Jane. Bye-bye. Environment Canada Senior Climatologist Dave Phillips. Uh, Join me tomorrow when our Recovering Politicians panel will be here right after the noon news. The 1 o'clock news now with Bob Comsick. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.